Addie. That's a lot to read. Well, please keep your Bible open to Matthew 12. Um, This is clearly a long passage with a lot going on. And if you want proof that Josh Fenska loves this church like he always says he does, look no further than the fact that he asked me to preach this passage and not him. (laughs) He admitted to me himself he would still be preaching at breakfast on Monday if this was his passage. So you're a good man. Well, there is a lot going on in this passage. There are many sermons that could be preached from this passage, and we could slow down and dig deeper into a lot of things that we've just read. Um, But if we keep it all together, which I think is worth doing, uh, I think we can see something that Matthew has in mind for us uh, by putting this all together uh, in his account of Jesus' ministry. And And I think we can track a movement in this passage um, that I think Matthew wants us to see that, that, that gives us a glimpse of what it looks like to be against Jesus and what it looks like to be with Jesus. And so um, that's what we're going to do. I think that's actually a decent summary of this passage. Um, and you may have noticed as Addie read that this is kind of a line in the sand moment in Jesus' ministry. It's kind of a, a line in the sand moment where... Um, he makes some pretty decisive and clear statements. Things like, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I don't know about you, but it feels foolish not to take statements like those seriously. So uh, let's walk through this passage together and pay attention to uh, what the the Holy Spirit shows us. And um, I think that that as we, uh, the, the passage as a whole kind of has Jesus responding three times to three different things people say to him. So for the sake of organization, we'll kind of break it down uh, like that. Three sections where Jesus is responding to something that somebody says. But first, uh, let's pray and ask God to help us understand. Father, we, when we come to your word, it's not like the rest of our day or our week. Uh, there is uh, something powerful that is able to happen when your word and your spirit interact with our hearts and our lives. And so we just invite you to do that uh, in spite of my weakness as a communicator and um, in spite of our weakness as listeners. um, Just ask that you would help us, that your word would not return void, that you would get things done in us as we pay attention to your word. So help us with that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so three responses from Jesus. The first one is a long section from verse uh, verse 22 to verse 37, and we'll just call it choosing sides. <clears throat> so look back at verse 22 with me. Uh, this whole thing starts with another healing. Verse 22, then a demon-possessed or oppressed man 
who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Now, despite the fact that this probably would have been the most incredible thing that you and I had ever seen in our lives, Matthew simply gives us one sentence and then moves on from the actual miracle. Uh, He doesn't have a lot to say about it. He wants us to pay more attention uh, to how people respond to the healing than to the healing itself. So uh, we've got these, we've got uh, two different responses that Matthew records to this mind-blowing healing that, uh, that Matthew cruises right by. So first, so there's the response of the people. That's normal people like you and me, um, assuming we are normal. And th- these are people that just witnessed a miracle, and they're amazed, as, as you and I would be, if the guy that we knew our whole lives who couldn't see and couldn't talk all of a sudden looks us in the eyes and says our names. Uh, they are rightfully amazed. And um, at least for some of them, apparently, witnessing this moment in Jesus' ministry leads them to ask kind of the big question of the day about Jesus. Is this the Messiah? Is he the son of David? Is this the guy we've been waiting for to deliver us from our enemies? Now, this is a biblically informed question. These people had the Old Testament and read places that talked about this Messiah that was going to come, the son of David, and they read things like this in Isaiah 35 that says, Your God will come with vengeance. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. So these guys are asking the right question. Wait a second. Is this the guy? But then Matthew quickly scoots on from from the right question and uh, gives us now the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders' response to Jesus' healing. And these guys are less optimistic, uh, to say the least. Verse 24, um, my paraphrase, they say, this man's not working for God. He's in cahoots with Satan. That's how he did it. Notice they're not questioning if a miracle happened. That's undeniable. They're questioning how it happened. And their theory is that Jesus just cast out this blind and mute-making demon by the power of demons. And this elicits Jesus' first response. And if I may paraphrase Jesus, his response is, really? I'm supposed to respond to that? But he does. But he doesn't have to say much to show how ridiculous their response, their theory is. In essence, Jesus goes on to say, Satan is wicked, but Satan's not stupid. Satan casting out Satan doesn't exactly advance the cause of Satan. Let's not be ridiculous here. Now, there were also Jewish exorcists at the time that the Pharisees apparently had no beef with. And so in verse 27, Jesus basically says, so are we all working for the devil here? Go talk to your own exorcists and uh, about that and, and let me know what they say. But, Jesus says, but if you're wrong about me, if you're wrong, he says in verse 28, and it's clear to everyone here that you're very wrong, then I'm not working for the kingdom of darkness here. 
then there's only one other logical explanation. And that's that the kingdom of God has arrived. And by the way, you just called his king demonic. This is where it gets kind of real. This is where our perfectly patient prince of peace draws his line in the sand. There is such thing as going too far. And I know that at least somebody here can join me in my giddy little kid fanboy appreciation for the fact that in this moment, Jesus goes tough guy for just a second. Anybody else like that? Rehearse the story with me briefly, if you will. All those years ago, Satan slithered into the garden, turned out the lights, took prisoners. All creation was cast into darkness and bondage. Every soul became his subject, enslaved to do his dark will. The snake locked us up, as it were, in his palace for safekeeping until he could finally destroy us. But he forgot the promise that someday someone was going to come and crush his head. 2,000 years ago, in a little town called Bethlehem, that someone showed up. Meek, lowly, in the form of a servant, and ready to bust heads. Jesus gives us a little behind-the-scenes understanding of what he's doing every single time. He casts out a demon, heals a sick person, redeems a sinner, dignifies an outcast. He's plundering Satan's goods. And we're the goods. We're the goods. Jesus showed up took on the strong man because we're the goods, because we're that valuable to him. Look at verse 30. Lying in the sand, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. We saw last week that the religious leaders have been privately scheming to destroy Jesus. But publicly, they're still just trying to discredit Jesus without blatantly taking sides against him because they're afraid of all the crowds that think Jesus is a big deal. But Jesus has had enough of it. No more tiptoeing around. Here he draws his line in the sand and says, you're either with me or you're against me. You're either gathering with me or you're scattering. No more straddling the fence. No more pretending. If it feels like things are escalating here with Jesus and his opponents, it's because they are. And as people like us living on this side of the cross of Christ, we know where this is all going. But let's be reminded briefly uh, about where this is coming from. So in, in one of the most remarkable chapters in the whole Old Testament, go read the whole thing later for yourself, Ezekiel 34. God spoke, spoke through the prophet Ezekiel these words that describe 
one aspect of what the Messiah was going to come and do. Why God was sending his Messiah. Look at part of it with me. I think some of it's going to show up on the, on the screen above me. From Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel writes, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. And by shepherds, God's referring to the leaders. People like the Pharisees. He says, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you don't feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, I'm against you shepherds. Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered. So God says to the leaders of his people, by your selfishness and your greed and refusal to carry out my will, you have scattered my people far and wide. So I'm going to send my Messiah the son of David, the good shepherd, to gather my people back to myself. That's what I'm going to come do. And this is a promise that was made five or six hundred years before Jesus was born. So this isn't new beef. But this is what Jesus stepped into. This is why he came. And it explains everything he does. From healing withered hands, to redeeming tax collectors, to healing and forgiving a paralytic, to restoring lepers, to this moment in verse 22 when he heals a blind and mute man who we're told has been oppressed by demons. This is the good shepherd, as Jesus calls himself in John 10. This is the good shepherd coming to gather his lost and wounded and oppressed sheep back to God. So when some of the people respond to Jesus by asking, can this be the son of David? They're recognizing Jesus is doing the kind of things that we were told the son of David was going to do. And when the Pharisees respond to Jesus by saying, this man works for Satan, they're feeling the weight of centuries of prophetic condemnation landing squarely on their shoulders. And Jesus won't let them hide. If there remained any question as to whether the way of Jesus and the way of man-made religion can coexist or cooperate with each other, Jesus puts that question to death right here. They're, these are not different teachers teaching different versions of the same truth. These are not different shepherds leading sheep on different paths to the same destination. According to Jesus, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And anyone who says otherwise, anyone who leads and teaches in such a way as to push people away from Jesus rather than drawing people toward Jesus, they will find themselves ultimately beyond forgiveness.
Look at verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, if we want to understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to understand why he said it here. The Pharisees just attributed the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. They said, you cast out demons by the prince of demons. Jesus said, I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. I don't know if these particular Pharisees had already moved themselves beyond the point of forgiveness, but I know they're at least moving in that direction. Witnessing the power of the Holy Spirit and then calling it the work of the devil is at the very least moving in the direction of an unforgivable kind of blasphemy. It's amazing what Jesus actually says here. He says, say what you will about me. Mock me. Accuse me. Spit on me. Crucify me. There will be mercy still. But be careful what you say about the Holy Spirit. There is such a thing as going too far. There's a lot that could be said about this. A lot I could point you to if you're interested in reading more. But let me just offer a quick pathway of exploration for your consideration if you're curious about these things. Uh, further understanding of what Jesus is talking about and who's in danger of it. Um, uh, just a pathway of exploration to consider. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. Primarily, this is a spiritual battle that we are in. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what we're engaged in. According to the New and Old Testaments, the role of the Holy Spirit is to reveal Jesus to our hearts, to bring us conviction of sin that leads us to repentance, to connect us to Jesus so that his life, death, and resurrection become ours and we benefit from them, to fill us with all the fullness of God so that we can walk in newness of life, and to arm us with spiritual weapons so that we can fight victoriously. If the only way a person can benefit from what Jesus has done is through the activity of the Holy Spirit, then attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan is outright rejection of God's way of redemption. And the Bible tells us that our hearts have the ability to grow hard through persistent resistance to God's Spirit. There is such a thing as being beyond forgiveness Precisely because every time we dismiss the work of the Holy Spirit, our hearts grow hard to the point that eventually repentance becomes impossible. Where there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness. Jesus isn't warning against saying a particular set of words that magically qualify as unforgivable. He's warning against a heart that will eventually want nothing to do with forgiveness at all. 
he goes on to make this heart connection explicit. Look at verse 33. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Jesus' point here is that our words come from somewhere. They come from our hearts. He says the same thing in other contexts as well. Our problem isn't that we say things we don't mean. Our problem is we say things that we do really mean. Our words reveal our hearts. And that goes for words spoken or typed, I might add. And Jesus says one day we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and the words we've spoken will be called to the witness stand to testify for or against us. And according to Jesus, our words will give a truthful testimony to the state of our hearts. That reality alone ought to drive us toward ever-deepening humility and repentance and pleading for grace. Jesus' point is simple and clear to anyone who understands their heart even a little bit. His point is we need new hearts. Now, before we move on from this first section, even though none of us currently flaunts the title Pharisee, at least not that I know of, we'd be wise to recognize that Jesus did broaden these warnings out a little bit from Pharisee to whoever. He said, whoever is not with me is against me. He said, whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. He says, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. I'm pretty sure everyone in here qualifies as whoever. There is no such thing as being neutral when it comes to Jesus. There's no such thing as being neutral when it comes to Jesus. He is right now, even now, gathering lost sheep to himself, seeking out the oppressed, the strayed, the weak, the outcast, plundering Satan's house, gathering lost sheep back to God. And the question he puts before us is, are you with me? Are you with me or are you against me? Are you with me or are you, are you pretending to straddle the fence? Are you hoping that you can stay on good terms with me even if you're unwilling to make me your king? Jesus says, there's no such thing as neutral. Stop fooling yourselves. These are things worth considering. But let's move on to the second section Jesus' second response, uh, starting in verse uh, 38, and I will call this something greater. I'm going to be a little bit brief in this section. Um, Basically, in verse 38, we seem to have a few of the religious leaders responding to the hard words Jesus has just said. And um, rightly so, I think, they start hearing Jesus and start thinking, you're starting to sound like, 
uh, one of those prophets that we read in the Old Testament. You're saying hard things. You're saying scary things. You're trying to talk like a prophet. And so they say, you know what, Jesus? Prove yourself. If you're going to talk like a prophet, prove it. Show us a sign, they say. I don't know, maybe they're thinking something like when Moses was validated by bread falling from the sky or when Elijah was validated by fire coming down on the altar. Um, They've just seen him cast out a demon, but they've been able to explain that away. So apparently they're uh, looking for something that's undeniable, like a voice from heaven declaring, this is my beloved son. Oh wait, that happened too, didn't it? But Jesus doesn't give them what they want. He is no genie in a bottle, vending machine, prophet. Look at verse 39. He answers them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. If you're familiar with the story of Jonah, it's in the Old Testament. You can read it in 20 minutes this week uh, in the book called Jonah. And it's about the time this runaway prophet um, named Jonah spent three days in the belly of a whale while he learned to obey God and not run away and then finally went and preached repentance to this wicked Gentile nation called Nineveh. Jonah warned them about God's coming judgment, and they responded in repentance. And Jonah was grumpy about it. And then in verse 42, Jesus calls another Old Testament story to mind that they would know uh, in the life of King Solomon when uh, another non-Jewish person, a woman, the queen of Sheba, traveled across the globe to hear the wisdom of King Solomon. And when she heard the wisdom that came out of Solomon's mouth and saw the unmistakable hand of God at work in Jerusalem, 1 Kings 10.5 says that the queen of Sheba, that there was no more breath left in her. She was literally breathless, speechless at what she saw of the hand of God in Solomon's kingdom. And then she responded by saying to Solomon, blessed be the Lord your God. And then she gave him boatloads of treasures as an expression of her own faith and worship. So Jesus gives two examples of non-Jewish people who repented without the need of signs and wonders. They just needed a confrontation with truth. They just needed to see it with their own eyes and hear it with their own ears, and they turned. And Jesus is not afraid to use these two Gentile examples to shame the proud Jewish leaders while at the same time asserting himself as a greater testimony to the power of God than Jonah or Solomon. If you remember last week, uh, earlier in chapter 12, Jesus was being accused of breaking the Sabbath, and he refers to the way that priests were able to do this and that in the temple, even on the Sabbath, and how it wasn't a wrong thing for them. And he concludes by saying something greater than the temple is here. And then here in this passage, Jesus says something greater than Jonah is here, the prophet Jonah, and he says something greater than King Solomon is here. Just in case you've ever wondered if Jesus actually claimed to be the Messiah, 
In this one chapter alone, Jesus has declared himself to be the fulfillment of all three significant roles in the Jewish faith. Prophet, priest, king. I'm greater. The religious leaders and even the crowds had definite questions about the true identity of this miracle-working teacher. Jesus, however, had no such questions. He knew exactly who he was and exactly what he came to do. I think there's just there's an interesting implication here for us that I'm just going to tease and let you run with. But there's this moment where somebody stands before Jesus and says, show me a sign and then I'll trust you. Show me a sign to, to validate your trustworthiness and, then, and then, I, then I'll follow you. And again, demands like these flow from a heart, right? They flow from somewhere. They reveal something true. And um, I wonder if anyone here He's holding out for a sign from God to, uh, to demonstrate his trustworthiness so that you might follow him and that you might put your trust in him. And I will say that, um, that there is no part of your life that needs a promise that God has not already given you right here in this book. There is nothing that you and I absolutely must know in order to determine God's credibility that's not already here in his written word. The testimony of the Holy Spirit interacting with the word of God in our hearts is sufficient to lead us to repentance and faith in Jesus. That's not to say that God can't, won't, or doesn't speak or reveal himself in other ways, but it is to say that our faith doesn't require it. Our response to the word of God is what's definitive. You can see the hardness of heart that Jesus has been warning against in this demand for a sign. These people are settling into their unbelief and their resistance in the Holy Spirit's work. The day of judgment, Jesus says, is going to reveal everything. And then the next few verses are chilling. And Jesus kind of loops back to the healing he performed at the beginning of this section. Look at verse 43. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. A little bit confusing. Not the way we typically talk and think. Um, but it, it, it seems to me it's almost as if Jesus is, uh, as if the healing that he performed at the beginning of this section is now kind of functioning as like a living parable for him. For this whole confrontation. So maybe it's a warning to the man that he just healed, who's probably standing there. Maybe it's a direct warning to him and nobody else. I doubt it, but I'm sure his ears at least perked up when Jesus looped back to this. But the point Jesus is making is, I haven't just come to clean house. His mission isn't just to track down the blind and mute and crippled and sick and oppressed and give them a reset or a fresh start or a chance to give it another go and hope for the best. 
That's the very best any man-made religion can offer us. Clean yourself up, pull yourself up, give it another go at self-transformation. Build a better you. Self-help books will never cease to be written because they will never accomplish what they need them what, what we need them to. New Year's resolutions will never stop being made because, uh, and they will never stop to disappoint, cease to disappoint because we're still the ones having to live them out each year. Jesus isn't a part of the way Savior. I'll get you clean, you take it from there. I'll clear out the demons, you take it from there. That's not who Jesus is. Better news the gospel gives. Cleanse the house, then comes and lives. With these words, Jesus is declaring that what's been said about him, things that have been said about him all along are true. Back to the prophet Ezekiel we, we looked at from chapter 34 a few minutes ago. Uh, a few chapters later, we read this in Ezekiel 37. Another continuation of this prophecy of what was to come. Ezekiel 37 says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. He sees these dried bones. You guys might know this story. These dried bones scattered about and, he, and these, these just dead bodies laying there, these skeletons. And he's told, these dry bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We're indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and I will raise you from your graves, O my people. But check this out. It was never just the plan to clean house and try again. It was never just the plan to say, you're alive again, now give it a go. He goes on in Ezekiel 37. He says, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. The house of Israel needed to be cleansed. It needed to be cleared out. They turned the worship of God into all manner of self-righteousness and wickedness. And every individual who's ever been born has likewise needed to be cleansed. We've needed to be cleaned. We've all exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And make no mistake, Jesus came and he cleaned house. He's the one stronger than the strong man. He came to plunder Satan's goods. He showed up with authority and with power and with a heart of mercy. He put his foot on the enemy's throat and set a host of captives free. But we need more than just a cleansing. We need more than just deliverance from oppression and slavery to sin. We need to be filled. We need new life. And the new life that we need is precisely what Jesus came to bring. He says, it's good for you that I go away, he told his disciples. Because I'll send you the Holy Spirit. And better than God next to you is God inside you. And he will come and he will give you power to walk in this newness of life. Anything less than that, Jesus says, is tragic. Jesus came to cleanse the house of Israel. He will symbolically cleanse the temple a little later on in Matthew's gospel. 
He came to cast out demons, heal the sick, call sinners of all kinds to repentance. But Jesus warns that those who are only interested in the outward benefits and intrigue, but not the inward life and lordship, will find themselves worse than where they started. They would have been better off having never encountered Jesus at all. Let those words sit with you for a minute. It's possible to experience Christ's power and be worse off in the long run. Do not resist, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul says, that you might have life. Let's move to the third and shortest section of this passage, Jesus' final response. We'll call this the family of Jesus. Look back at verse 46. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who's my mother and who are my brothers? And then stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So as all these things were unfolding, Mary and Jesus' brothers show up hoping to talk with Jesus. We're not sure what they wanted to say, but oftentimes when they showed up, they wanted to wrangle him in a little bit. Tell him he was out of his mind sometimes. What we see here, when Jesus is told that his family is here and wants to talk to him, what we see here is not a rude dismissal of his own loved ones, but a providential teaching moment, which Jesus always takes advantage of. Jesus loved and cared for his mother until his last breath. Don't get that twisted. But in the midst of this confrontation that we've just been looking at about who Jesus is, who he's working for, what it means to be with him, what it means to be against him, Jesus gives us this sweet moment of tender invitation. It's very logical to think that Jesus' flesh and blood relatives have an inside track into relationship with Jesus. It's very understandable. That would make a lot of sense, and yet it would leave a lot of us, all of us, on the fringes. Wouldn't Satan like us to believe that we're merely on the fringes of Jesus' heart and attention? And yet, praise God, Jesus wants us to know that's not the case. Here we come to one more whoever, and let's enjoy this one. Whoever does the will of my Father is my family. No one has the upper hand when it comes to Jesus. No one has privileged access when it comes to Jesus. No one has more of his time, his heart, his attention than the littlest, least significant person in the world who comes to him in humble, simple, active faith. How beautiful is that? Ever feel like the littlest Ever feel like the least significant one? Nobody has more privileged access to Jesus than you do. I know some people feel inferior to other Christians, even weekly when they show up to church, show up believing that you don't measure up to everyone else here, 
show up feeling like if they only knew, they probably wouldn't even let me in. Maybe you have the wrong past. Maybe you have the wrong family. You have the wrong education. Maybe you have the wrong struggles. Maybe you have too much baggage, too many scars, too many wrong turns. There's nothing impressive about you whatsoever. We'll hear the good news again today. Jesus is gathering a family of people just like you. Not the religious, not the educated, not those of a certain family or ethnicity or history or background or legacy, not those who are impressive by worldly standards, but who? Those who sit at the feet of Jesus. Those who come to Jesus as learners, disciples. Those who receive the word of God with humility and meekness and faith. Those who know that their only righteousness is not something they've earned themselves, but is something that Jesus earned for them and then gave to them. Those whose hearts cry out along with Jesus, Father, not my will, but yours be done. This is Jesus' family, according to Jesus. The only things that qualify you are your sinfulness, your brokenness, your desperation, humility, repentance, and a faith that does. If that describes you, and you count everything else as loss for the sake of knowing Christ and being found in his family, then you're on the right side of the line. That's what it means to be with Jesus and not against him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's good for us to remember this about each other and about ourselves. It's good for us to look around this room and remind ourselves that that's what unites us. We shouldn't be very impressed with ourselves. We absolutely shouldn't let lesser matters distance us from one another. We are the household of God by faith in Jesus Christ, and our rallying point is a bloody cross. A bloody cross which declares that we all stand on level ground no matter how you're dressed, how you're educated, who your family is, or how cleaned up your life looks at any given moment. Jesus has a different kind of blood relatives. Those who share in his blood by virtue of his death that he died to bring many to the Father. That's why we take the Lord's Supper every week. And that's why we call it a family meal. We rightly paid attention a few minutes ago to Jesus' words about the unforgivable category of offense. But let's close our time together paying attention to the other part of what Jesus said there. Look back at the first half of verse 31. Out of the mouth of our Lord Jesus, he says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Let me read that again. 
Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Anyone feel like rejoicing in the word every all of a sudden? Every sin will be forgiven? What about last night? Every sin will be forgiven. What about, what about lying to my parents again this morning? Every sin will be forgiven. What about cheating on my test last week? Every sin will be forgiven. What about giving in to sexual temptation for the thousandth time again? Every sin will be forgiven. What about the hateful words I said? What about the, another angry outburst toward my kids? What about all my faithless anxiety that keeps overcoming me? What about those horrible moments in my past that I'm ashamed to even think about? What about this? What about that? What about you fill in the blank? Every sin will be forgiven, people. Jesus said it. Do you believe it? We have good reason to believe him because Jesus didn't just say it. He didn't just say every sin will be forgiven. He did everything necessary to make sure it was possible. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat because this is my body. And he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If you're serving Lord's Supper, please make your way forward.